Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, as a massive manhunt continues for two murder suspects, some expert insight on what might be going through their minds. Also, the 2019 election date will remain where it is. Some reaction from one of the groups who'd been hoping for a change. A closer look at the fallout from the opioid epidemic, now it's impacting patients dealing with chronic pain. A new study looks at Canadians' belief in God and how we feel about religious symbols. Plus, a look at the downside of the growing e-scooter craze. But let's turn our attention to what has been the big national story for more than a week now. The massive national manhunt for these two young murder suspects wanted in connection with three deaths in northern B.C. And like I say, it's hard to to think of, at the top of my head, a, a manhunt, an investigation of this scope that has been bigger. But yet still, these suspects have evaded it all. They remain on the run, on the loose. RCMP today in Manitoba confirming that, yes, these two suspects have been spotted. There has been a confirmed sighting. There was a confirmed sighting in Split Lake, and this was prior to uh, the Gillum, the, the vehicle being set on fire in Gillum. So it's been confirmed that they were in northern Manitoba. Well, where they are at this moment, we still don't know. But at the moment, nothing has changed. Police are still looking for 19-year-old Cam McLeod and 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski. How are they doing it? Right? How are they avoiding detection? How have they made it across four provinces without being caught? What is going on in their minds? You know, there's, there's the, the adrenaline, I suppose, if you want to call it that, of being on the run. But certainly you got to think at some point the fear and the paranoia that it's all going to catch up to you at some point. What kind of dangers does that create? Well, joining us for some insight on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program. Ju Young Lee is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, uh, an expert in criminal psychology. Professor Lee, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, at this point, uh, these two have been officially charged with one murder suspected and two obviously not yet convicted. But, I mean, if if they are responsible for these three murders, I mean, is is that, does it sound like, I don't know if a murder spree is the right way to call it, but it, does it seem as though that was, that was premeditated? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, the plan, like, again, I think we should be careful at this stage because they are, leading suspects and they haven't been convicted of anything but um in general terms when people go on killing sprees and spree killings are different from mass killings in the fact that in a mass killing you have multiple people killed and injured in a single event killing sprees unfold over time uh, but within a short window of time so these can last up to a week or two sometimes up to a month now 
the thing I wanted to mention, getting back to, you know, the killing sprees, is that typically individuals who go on to do these things um, concoct a plan ahead of time, but they don't necessarily pick out specific targets. Um, the victims in killing sprees are typically people who are just simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. So uh, the ideas are not born overnight. They're not just impulsive. These are fantasies and ideas that people have had over time, and then they enact them, but the, the targets themselves are not necessarily premeditated. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a tricky answer. Right. So in, in that sense, then the spree killings would be much different than, than serial killings. Exactly. And serial killings are different from spree killings insofar as they have what's known as a cooling off period, meaning that there's a time period, typically months, maybe even years in between kills. Um, And spree killings are all, again, contained within a few weeks or even up to a month. All right, so now we've got this situation where for more than a week now, these two have been on the run and so far uh, have evaded capture, which is, is, I suppose, surprising in one sense. But obviously, we're dealing with a very large geographical area. And and, and, uh, in some cases, maybe we are looking for for needles in a haystack. But what is that mindset then uh, of of criminals or wanted criminals who, who are on the run like this? Well, at this point, because we are talking about a manhunt that has uh, you know, surpassed a week in time, talking about suspects who are most likely very tired, they're very hungry, they're very um, nervous and anxious about every move they make because they know that their uh, pictures and their identities are out there and they're, they're worried that any wrong move could lead to their capture. So this is a point in which mental and physical fatigue really start to set in. Uh, when you're dealing with two individuals, there, there's obviously a need for them, I, I suppose, to, to rely on one another. But uh, amid all of that, that tension and that pressure, uh, can and do things go, go sideways? They do. And, um, you know, typically when we talk about spree killings, if they're done in tandems, we have, you know, one individual is usually sort of the leader or the alpha. The other person is the follower. Um, And sometimes at this point, you know, after people have been out there, you know, away from their everyday comforts for over a week, there, there is a moment sometimes where one person will say, you know what, this is much more than I bargained for. I don't think I can continue on this path. Uh, whereas the other person might have more resiliency in that, in that sense. So there are moments of disagreement that unfold in these, these kinds of issues. In situations where there's a, a desperation to uh, avoid capture, and, and that's what this feels like, can, can that create uh, an additional danger if, if there are people seen to be in their way or people who might contribute to to their their eventual capture downfall does does that put people in danger potentially most definitely and i think you know the police and rcmp have been you know advising people to uh, avoid them and to make reports to the police which is smart um you know when your back's against the wall and when you've been out away out in the wild for a week and when you anticipate the fact that you're a leading suspect in a murder case you know, you have a lot to lose, and you're afraid that if you get arrested, you're going to go away for a long time. And, you know, that can stir up even more desperation in people who are out there on the run. So this is a very volatile moment, and, you know, I know everybody is, is hoping that it all ends peacefully. Well, and I think a lot of people, too, are hoping that it ends in, in their capture, and I, I suppose maybe that's an open question, then, that if, if they are so determined not to be taken, 
uh, that that could potentially lead to a point where maybe they would would take their own lives to avoid capture. That that's got to be a real concern. That is also a concern. So sometimes these these spree killings are conceived from the get go as a final farewell, final act of revenge against the world that you feel has wronged you in some way. Um, that's not always the case, but that's often part of the underlying motivations. Like the individuals who go on to do these things are typically very angry and they feel um, as if something that they're entitled to has not been given to them. That can be, you know, status. It could be romantic um, love from desired women. Like there's a number of different things, but we, we see this pattern where young men are so embittered with the world that they go out and commit violence against others. And, you know, th- that's something else to be kind of aware of, I guess. Well, some important points. Uh, Dr. Lee, we appreciate your insight on, on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Uh, that is Dr. Ji Young Lee, Associate Professor of Sociology, University of Toronto, expert in criminal psychology. And so uh, his thoughts on what might be going on here based on his own study uh, of other examples of this kind of thing, these sorts of spree killings, criminals on the run. What, what that mindset, that mentality is at this moment. Well, we talked about this last week in an update on the story today. The um, federal chief electoral officer uh, has responded to uh, that court decision last week that didn't order a change in the election date, but ordered the chief electoral officer to take another look at the issue. Now, this came about uh, because there was uh, an Orthodox Jewish candidate for the conservative party, uh, Chani Aryeh Bain, who's running for the conservatives in Eglinton Lawrence in the Toronto area. Uh, argued that because October 21st coincides uh, with an important Jewish holiday, that the election should be moved, moved to October 28th. The decision today from the chief electoral officer is that the election will remain where it is. Quote, having carefully considered the impact of holding the election on October 21st on the ability of observant Jews to participate in the electoral process and having balanced that with my mandate to ensure accessible voting opportunities for all Canadians, I conclude it would not be advisable to change the date of the election at this stage. This is not a decision I make lightly, but with a view to providing the broadest possible range of accessible voting services to the population at large. I'm committed to continuing to work with the Jewish community to maximize voting options within the existing calendar in ways that are convenient and consistent with their religious beliefs. Uh, Now, last week, we did hear from one uh, prominent Jewish organization in Canada, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which argued that they felt Elections Canada was doing enough to try to accommodate observant Jews uh, and that changing the date was not necessary. Uh, Another prominent group, though, B'nai B'rith Canada, intervened in this court case in support of this candidate, arguing that the date should be changed. So I want to get that side of this, joining us uh, for some reaction. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Michael Mostyn, who is CEO of Ben Breath Canada. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. So your reaction to, to this decision, first of all? Uh, so first of all, we, we're disappointed. Uh, we disagree with the decision of Elections Canada today. Uh, we find the decision to be 
incorrect and unreasonable. Um, however, uh, given that there really is no time left uh, to appeal this uh, because August 1st is the very last date under the law that uh, a recommendation for a change of election could be made. And in effect, neither we nor anyone else can really appeal this decision. So uh, we will do our best to communicate this issue uh, to the Jewish community and, um, and try to get as much voter participation as is possible under the circumstances. Now, obviously, Elections Canada was concerned about the, um, all the provisions they have in place, and certainly they have to uh, have in place across the country, schools, etc., where polling stations are going to be set up. So there's been a lot of groundwork laid for October 21st. Did you believe, though, that it was, it was reasonable and doable to move that by a week? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, Elections Canada is set up um, for really at any point to be able to put on a snap election within 36 days. We're more than 90 days out, so this was entirely achievable. The main ad- objection, you're right, of the chief electoral officer to moving the date uh, is now the difficulty in rebooking polling stations on short notice. But it's important to point out that this is a problem entirely of his own making. It would have been avoided if he had taken this very important Jewish holiday into account earlier, and the court, in fact, ruled that he should have taken that into account earlier. But the legislation is uh, very specific in terms of the third Monday in the month of October, four years after the previous election. Is, is it then up to the chief electoral officer if that's what the legislation stipulates? Shouldn't we have had the conversation when we put that into writing? Uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right, but it's also in the legislation that there is discretion of the chief electoral officer. If there is a, a major day of cultural or religious significance um, that is going to have an impact on charter voting rights of a significant group of, of individuals, um, that that should be considered. And so it is in his discretion to change the voting date. We argued uh, in court that that should have happened a long time ago before, in fact, this, the uh, election was scheduled uh, this time. Uh, We will be working uh, together with Elections Canada and the various political parties in the future to ensure that, you know, maybe there are changes to the Elections Act that should be made to push this a little further so this doesn't happen again. But, um, you know, we we felt that even this time, uh, charter rights uh, should not be infringed, both for voting, by the way, and also for meaningful participation. Because if you're an observant Jew and you want to knock on doors, scrutineer on Election Day for the candidate and the party of your choice... Um, you know, we, we think that every Canadian should feel enfranchised within the democratic process and um, and fully participate in the elections. Uh, come after this election, uh, once we get past this election, is do you think then there should be a conversation? I mean, I think it's reasonable that we could discuss whether, you know, we, we make it the, the fourth Monday in October or the first Monday in November. Uh, is there an opportunity after this election to, to have that conversation? Absolutely. And and I think that's a conversation that should be had. Um, And, you know, we should open up all of the calendars and look at, you know, what are all the major religious holidays uh, that are important uh, and significant? What are all the major cultural days that could impact various communities and ensure that something like this doesn't happen in the future? And that's definitely something that B'nabrith is going to be working towards in the future. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, part of the argument has been that, you know, there are a lot of different uh, groups, obviously, in a country like a pluralistic country like Canada, a lot of different religious faiths, a lot of different significant religious days. Can, can we realistically take them all into account? Um, you know what? I, I think so. Because there are many, many significant days, but how many days are impacted when um, a significant 
group of individuals based on their religious belief actually cannot uh, properly participate, can't vote, can't write, can't drive. Uh, that's, that's the impact of, of this particular Jewish holiday uh, on the election and, and the disenfranchising. And something that we wrote in our materials uh, to the chief electoral officer after our, um, uh, the court decision was talking about the 2018 Quebec election date, uh, which was not moved for the very same holiday. Um, and voter turnout plunged from 72% to 49% in the most heavily Jewish riding, which was Darcy McGee, uh, despite various accommodations uh, that were made at the advanced polls. So, so this is something in this particular holiday we know has had a, a big impact. And if it's a close election, um, there are several ridings across the country that have significant populations. Uh, this could have an impact on the outcome of the election. And, and we just think that all Canadians should feel fully enfranchised, regardless of their um, conscience or, or freedom of religion. And, um, and they should all, everybody should feel equal in this country. Now, certainly Election Canada has tried to take steps to, to help those who might be unable to vote on Election Day to have an opportunity to vote. There are four days of advanced polling. Uh, they're going to have extra staff to, to accommodate uh, people at, at those polling stations. There's the opportunity to, to get a, a special mail-in ballot. Why is that insufficient? Uh, well, in this particular case, normally Canadians will have 60 hours of advanced voting uh, through the advanced polls uh, to, to uh, participate if they can't vote on Election Day. Uh, because of various other holidays, which just so happen to take place during October this year, uh, observant Jews will only have access to approximately 17 hours. So um, most of these advanced poll dates are also inaccessible. Now, there will be several alternative uh, items um, voting uh, options put forward by Elections Canada. We will be working with them to try and get this out to the Jewish community. But what's also critical to understand here is it's not just about the vote. Um, it's also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Ms. Aryeh Bain, and there's another candidate as well in another riding, who are observant Jews. Their charter rights to meaningfully contest the election have been placed into jeopardy. And the chief electoral officer's decision does really not talk about their rights uh, to, uh, to meaningful participation uh, in this election campaign. Right. So that would involve Election Day activities that you alluded to, such as uh, getting out and, and door knocking or, or getting people to the polls, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and obviously for, for volunteers on their campaigns that also choose you know, to, uh, to follow their faith and, and not participate that day uh, in the electoral process. And so that's why, for all of those reasons, you know, we think going forward into the future, uh, this is something that, um, that Elections Canada and all of the parties should, should seriously consider just so that um, an issue like this doesn't arise again. All right. Much more at benebreath.ca. Michael, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. All right, there you go. That's so Michael Boston, CEO of Benet Breath Canada. Uh, so they take the position that the election date should have been changed, uh, and it's unfortunate that Elections Canada has decided otherwise. Had he have not been prescribed that medication all those years ago, would it have led to where it ended? You don't know. But it does make you wonder. Global News Today kicking off a four-part series about opioid addiction and the role that prescription opioids has played in fueling that crisis. I think a lot of people tend to think of opioid addicts as people who use these drugs to get high. But a big part of the equation are people who became hooked on these drugs after being prescribed them. It was the voice of Kaylee Robbins talking about her brother Chad 
who had been prescribed opioid medication after suffering a serious injury as a construction worker in Simcoe County, Ontario. He fatally overdosed at the age of 32 in 2017. Global News also spoke with Dr. Meldon Kahane, Medical Director of the Substance Use Service Department at Women's College Hospital. And he doesn't mince words about the role that one particular pharmaceutical company played in fueling this crisis. Well, the roots were back in the 90s uh, when Purdue uh, manufactured a, a medication called OxyContin, which was a long-acting or controlled-release oxycodone preparation. And then they developed uh, pro- almost certainly the most diabolically effective and dishonest marketing campaign in modern history. They uh, had a few simple messages, every single one of which were false. Uh, One was that oxycontin was less addicting than its equivalent uh, short-acting oxycodone. That was false. Uh, The other was that patients with chronic pain very rarely get addicted. Uh, That was false. The other was that uh, you could dose the oxycontin to any dose. Uh, you, You keep on going up until the pain is completely relieved. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, when, when it emerged, which was pretty early on, that people were dying of oxycontin overdoses and people were getting addicted, they hunkered down and continued to say that, oh, these were just addicts. They were people who deliberately went into the doctor's office and lied to them, which was actually not true at all. These were patients who went to doctors for legitimate pain relief and took the oxycontin in enormously high doses that they were getting because the the pharmaceutical companies told them. And uh, they got a a euphoric or or psychoactive effect from it and they got addicted to it and they couldn't stop. Uh, This is not only a tragedy leading to tens of thousands of deaths, but also a scandal because the medical profession just rolled over. They, they accepted everything that the pharmaceutical company said. These were even pain specialists, uh, medical leaders. They said, yes, we, if you don't give patients oxycontin, you're opiophobic as a doctor. This is wrong. You're harming your patients. It's a mess caused by greed and dishonesty on the part of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, a, a lack of, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know what the word is critical thinking abilities on the part of the medical profession that they just accepted this uh, uh, you know uh, uh, they swallowed it whole despite the uh, flimsy evidence base that the uh, Purdue presented and the patients have suffered because uh, most of them uh, went to a doctor with legitimate pain they were given this medication they were uh, uh, assured it was safe that they wouldn't that nothing bad would happen to them and it's ruined their lives and so there, there's quite a story to be told there but the reality is still that there are people who are dealing with pain and i think that's been overlooked to to, to some extent in this whole conversation there are a lot of people who feel that maybe some of these opioid-based medications have been beneficial to them. And what are the alternatives? So how do we balance these very legitimate concerns about the overuse of these drugs with the very valid need of helping people deal with pain and chronic pain? 
Well, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Lori Montgomery, medical leader with the Alberta Health Services Calgary Pain Program, a clinical associate professor in the Departments of Family Medicine and Anesthesiology at the University of Calgary. Dr. Montgomery, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, your thoughts, just first of all, on, on kind of how we got here and, and the role maybe then that, that the overprescription of opioids might have played. Well, I, that's a really good question that um, is frequently debated even in pain circles, I must say. Um, you know, I, I have to say that I agree with Dr. Kahan that a, a big part of that was really the, the messaging that was coming from pharmaceutical industry around opioids for many years. Um, and, it, it, you know, this isn't just a phenomenon that happens in pain medicine. It happens across medicine where for a long time we've really relied on for the pharmaceutical industry to do a lot of our teaching. Um, and it's only really just in the last few years, really, that we've started to be much more conscious of the effect that that has on our prescribing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's absolutely part of why we were all taught that you should go as high as you need to with opioids. There's no danger as long as the patient actually has pain. Um, and that you can't develop an addiction if you're using the medication for pain. Um, those those messages were were absolutely embedded in medical education for many many years. And there were consequences. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it, it's it's honestly difficult to say what uh, what proportion of people who are using opioids for pain go on to develop an opioid use disorder, um, because those studies are really hard to do properly. It takes it takes a long time for many of these patients. It's many years before that's actually identified and diagnosed. So so the studies are difficult to do well. But we know that it's at least part of the problem. Um, you know, we we know that we are we have been for many years prescribing opioids in situations where they don't necessarily help in the long term, mm-hmm. and so you know my perspective is even if we're a small part of the problem, we need to deal with whatever small part of the problem we are. Well, yeah, and according to this story from Global, it says Statistics Canada found that around one in ten Canadians who used an opioid medication reported problematic use. So that yeah. represents a lot of Canadians clearly, but it also suggests that there are a lot of Canadians who are using these medications who do not engage in problematic use. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, I think, most, most people who prescribe opioids would agree that the majority of people that we prescribe them to are using them as they're prescribed. Um, I think where it, in, in terms of pain medicine, which is my field, the, the place where we start to question our judgment over the years is just whether or not all of those people, even if they are absolutely using the medication appropriately, whether they're still actually benefiting from it years later. And, and that's the difficult thing. When and um, when you start an opioid medication in the first few days or even the first few weeks, it's dramatically helpful. Most people feel a lot better, a lot happier, a lot you know better able to function. Um, but those beneficial effects for a lot of people decline very gradually over time. So you, they find themselves 10, 15 years later using a medication because they're, they assume that they'll be so much worse if they aren't taking it. And that may not necessarily be true. Right, that it can create a dependency. Well, all patients who are taking opioids in the long term get physically dependent on it. There's no question. Um, so that's not the same as addiction. It's not right. the same as an opioid use disorder. Your body's used to it, and it's going to complain if you try and take it away. Um, that's just a natural response that your body has. But, I mean, painkillers, opioid-based or otherwise, they're, they're not meant to be permanent solutions for people. Absolutely. 
absolutely. That's and that's a really important point that I don't think um, that's not a conversation that we typically have with patients when we start medications uh, for pain. Is that um, your pain system is actually really important to sustain life. Um, there are people who are actually born without the ability to sense pain. And those people tend to have a really short life expectancy because pain is important to keep you alive, to protect yeah. you. And so your body has all kinds of ways of working around it if you try and inter- interfere with that. So it works for a little while, and then your body finds a way to preserve that pain response because it's so important. But anyone who's dealing with pain, I mean, the, the first thing you think of, right, that's, that's top of mind is I, you know, I want this to go away, right? And, and it, it could become overwhelming, that sense. Yeah, absolutely. There is, uh, there, in, in a lot of patients who've had pain for many years, there's quite a sense of desperation. Even when we set out some of the, um, some of our expectations of the medications, they, they often aren't, they're not going to eliminate your pain, certainly. They often aren't going to do more than reduce your pain by a couple of points on a 10-point scale. You know, I had 8 out of 10 pain before. I have 7 out of pain, 10 pain now. That, that might be a typical response to some medications. A lot of patients have just been so um, in so much pain for so long that, that they're really desperate for any kind of relief they can get. So you get the sense, and certainly what we've been hearing anecdotally, is that maybe the, the pendulum has started swinging the other way, that there's a lot more caution when it comes to prescribing uh, prescription opioids. However, does that mean for people that, that need them or f- people for whom it, it, it is beneficial? Are, are they having a more difficult time getting these prescriptions? Well, in some cases, I would say um, it's really important that we still maintain access for people who have things like surgical pain or um, cancer pain, end-of-life pain, those kinds of situations. There's no question that opioids are helpful, and we don't want to see those patients uh, seeing a restriction in their ability to access them. You know, But for a patient with um, most chronic pain conditions, um, the evidence that we have really is that in the long term, it's more likely to be harmful than helpful. So we really have to, we really should be much more cautious about going down that road with patients with chronic pain. So should should opioids be a a last resort, though? Well, that's my feeling, is that you really, you need to try the other things before you go down that road of considering opioid therapy. And that's, that's really the sticking point for a lot of patients. The things that we know work for chronic pain are more in the realm of things like physiotherapy and psychology, occupational therapy, um, things that are typically not funded for patients to access. Well, and that, that's a big obstacle, isn't it? Absolutely. It's probably the biggest problem in pain management across the country is that the things that we know work that have excellent evidence are not things that people can access unless they have money. Uh, and, and then there's the question as well of, of dealing with the root causes of what's causing these, uh, you know, these, these pain symptoms. And, and that's uh, another big challenge. So in terms then, I mean, when you identify, you know, the, those those alternatives that could be beneficial but that people have to pay for and then the challenges of the healthcare system in addressing these problems i mean the, the, these seem to represent pretty big challenges 
Definitely. Um, I think that there's a lot of evidence to guide our decisions, though. And there are a couple of, you know, there's a there's an effort to develop a provincial pain strategy that coordinates services for people so that they can access them close to home and, and access the things that actually work. Um, and Health Canada has also recently set up a task force to look at this issue and try and see how nationally they can try to coordinate services to make it easier for people to, to access the things that work. All right. Well, it's pretty uh, important insight here, Laurie. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, That is uh, Dr. Laurie Montgomery, medical leader with the Alberta Health Services Calgary Pain Program, also with the University of Calgary, uh, so specializes in pain, pain medicine, pain treatment, saying that, sure, yeah, they're, they're all alternatives, more effective, certainly safer alternatives in dealing with pain that are not even pharmaceutical in nature, but for a lot of patients, that means paying out of pocket. There's some considerable cost to that, that, that kind of treatment. In terms of how we perceive each other, in terms of how we get along and coexist, it's worth understanding not just how people feel themselves about religion, their own religion, how we feel about each other. It's a really interesting a new survey out today, a study uh, done for the Association for Canadian Studies called Definitely Maybe No Way Do Canadians Believe in God. And there are a lot of questions as well about how Canadians perceive other religions, how Canadians perceive religious symbols. And obviously in Quebec, this has been a big issue, much less so, I, I think, in other parts of the country. But joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, Jack Jedwab. He's president and CEO of the Association of Canadian Studies. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, why, why is it then, do you think, important to understand how Canadians feel about religion, whether Canadians are religious, how they, they feel about other religions? Well, it's become, um, in particular in my home province of Quebec, uh, part of the public policy uh, conversation. Uh, the legislation that was adopted in June, uh, Bill 21, uh, was uh, a function of a long-standing, decade-long uh, discussion about religious accommodation. And uh, so I think increasingly we're seeing uh, different ways in which uh, religion and notably religious accommodation informs uh, public policy conversations. Uh, So from that standpoint, you know, having this type of information, I think, can be very uh, helpful to uh, persons who uh, think about accommodation issues and how we deal with matters of diversity and its management. Mm -hmm. So on the question of of religion or the question of personal belief, I suppose, would maybe be the way to put it. Uh, as to whether Canadians believe in God, I mean, a lot of Canadians still do, a lot of Canadians don't, and it, it does vary across the country, but by and large, where, where do Canadians seem to come down on this? Well, about a little over one in, one in three Canadians are strongly agree that, uh, or strongly believe in God, another uh, one-fifth uh, are somewhat of uh, the opinion, or believe in God to some degree, and then uh, about uh, 30% of the three in ten don't believe in God, uh, 10% say they don't know if they do or don't, and uh, a very minor percentage prefer not to answer. In Alberta, your home province, uh, uh, it's about uh, 38% that strongly believe, and that's two points above the national average. Uh, so where is, is belief the strongest, then? Uh, belief would be the strongest in New Brunswick and in uh, Manitoba, uh, according to the survey, also Saskatchewan, so on the prairies, and in New Brunswick, it seems to be the strongest, uh, and it's the weakest in my home province of Quebec and in British Columbia. 
And it's interesting because we, you know, we've spoken about Bill 21 and there's been a lot of focus on, on what's going on in Quebec and what's billed as, as secular legislation that does take aim at religious symbols. I mean, you know, some might see a correlation here that, that very few Canadian or rather fewer Quebecers, certainly much, much fewer than the national average, do not believe in God. Does, does that secularism or atheism right. lend itself in, into something like Bill 21? Because you don't, you don't see that in BC, for example. Right. Certainly for a minority of Quebecers that uh, are uh, persons who uh, support Bill 21, at least the majority of Quebecers, let me rephrase that, support Bill 21, but I would suggest an important minority of them do so out of a sense that that they are detached from religion, uh, hence don't believe in God, don't participate in religious ceremonies and so forth to any meaningful degree. Uh, that certainly is one of the driving factors in support for the legislation. Uh, but I would suggest the more important factor in support for the legislation is negative sentiment towards uh, religious minorities, notably towards Muslims, as the same survey, the, at least the detailed version of it, suggests that that seems to be much more the driving factor than uh, the extent to which people believe or don't believe in God or the extent to which they attend religious services, although there's uh, some relationship between those two, right? So some of the same people that feel an antipathy towards religion in general uh, also feel to a significant degree negative sentiment towards minority religious communities and notably Muslims. It's interesting because, look, I mean, I, I would consider myself to be an atheist. I, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe religion is important, at least to me. But I also understand that it is important to other people. I, I happen to think that Bill 21 is a terrible piece of legislation and does represent an attack on, on religious minorities. But I suppose maybe there's some logic to the sense that if, if individuals don't see religion as important... Uh, then, then they don't understand perhaps why this matters so much to 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 religious groups in Quebec, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the case, I first of all, let me say, I agree with you about uh, Bill Twenty One. I think it's terrible legislation. Uh, but uh, I think for some people who have that antipathy towards religion, as expressed in the survey, and disproportionately so in Quebec, uh, that uh, they don't feel it has its uh, place in the public space, and uh, that's what drives. Uh, at least part of the support for Bill 21. Uh, they think there's something irrational about religion, and hence they don't uh, uh, support the idea of it being accommodated by the state to the extent they think that these things are accommodation. Now, you know, is someone wearing a hijab uh, uh, imposing something on someone who is not religious, which is a, a view that's held by a important percentage of Quebecers according to the survey? I think not. But uh, the... Uh, uh, government has managed to persuade uh, a lot of people that is the case, that something's being imposed on them uh, or being imposed on society uh, in terms of its very presence. And I think that's a wrong-headed view, but it's it's one that seems to have resonated with a lot of people who feel antipathy towards religion. It's interesting because... You know, amongst visible minorities, there's there's a much higher level of belief in, in God. And when it comes to uh, understanding or seeing the importance of religious symbols, does, does it appear as though religious minorities uh, have, you know, have a lot of empathy for one another, that they can appreciate uh, the plight of, of one another? Uh, well, according to the survey, religious minorities uh, pretty much view uh, in a, a positive way the sort of spectrum of religious symbols, at least the four we uh, provided to them in terms of uh, reaction for purposes of doing the poll, which was the crucifix, cross, hijab, and the kippah, the head cover for Jewish males. Uh, if you were a member of a religious minority, you seem to have... Uh, 
a positive sentiment of all religious symbols, right? You didn't see them as competing religious symbols. But in the case of Quebec, amongst the majority uh, Catholic and atheist-defined uh, populations, uh, there wasn't as much trouble with the Christian religious symbols, but there was more discomfort with the non-Christian religious symbols, that is to say the hijab and the kippah. Right. And I guess when it, as it applies to Bill 21 in, in Quebec, it, it doesn't distinguish, right? I mean, it, it, it encompasses all religious symbols, Correct. doesn't it? Correct. Correct. Uh, to do otherwise would have been a, a flagrant violation of our uh, charter. As it stands, I'm of the view that the legislation is a violation of the charter, but we'll have to see going forward uh, how the courts deal with this thing. We know that in Quebec, uh, the law uh, includes a notwithstanding provision, which presumably exempts it from charter challenges. But uh, my understanding is there are organizations that are looking for ways to uh, challenge the legislation, at least uh, even if it's un- they're unable to secure its its disallowance in some way, at least uh, get uh, the justices to confirm that there is a violation of the charter, even if it's exempted. Very interesting. Well, we'll either for now, Jack, uh, much more at uh, acs-aec.ca, the website for the Association for Canadian Studies. People can read this particular study for themselves. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. You take care. You too. That's Jack uh, Jedwan, President and CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies. ACS, for Association for Canadian Studies, dash AEC, which would be the uh, French abbreviation. ACS dash AEC dot CA. So I enlisted Leger to do the study, asking Canadians, you know, straight up across the board, do you believe in God? And then those results are broken down in terms of uh, age, age groups, by a province, by a religion, by a gender. And it's interesting because even though as, as a whole fewer Canadians believe in God than was once the case, it's not being driven by any kind of demographic change because ethnic minority Canadians are in fact the most likely to say they believe in God. But there's, there's probably at some level a, a correlation here, because as the study finds, atheists and Catholics hold the most negative views of hijabs. And it says as well, with the exception of atheist crucifixes, are seen as mostly positive across all religious groups. So d- does it explain what's going on in Quebec with Bill 21? And what's, what's seen by many as an attack on religious minorities, on religious symbols. And why is there such a different approach when you take the two most atheist provinces, B.C. and Quebec, and such a world of difference when it comes to approaching these two things? I mean, clearly then there are some cultural differences between B.C. and Quebec. So how do you explain this different approach? So on the question of I believe in God. They strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, and strongly disagree. So, for example, the highest degree of, of strongly agree belief in God, New Brunswick at 54.2%, Alberta at 37.9%, and uh, yeah, the two lowest, BC at 30.6%, and Quebec at 277 But in terms of the strongest disbelief in God, which is interesting, Nova Scotia is a little more split, but 339 Percent of folks in Nova Scotia strongly disbelieve in God. 25.6 in British Columbia. 
20.8 in Quebec. So there's actually stronger disbelief in God in BC than there is in Quebec. You don't see these kinds of debates anywhere in the country, really, other than Quebec, about religious symbols. Well, maybe you've seen them. I saw my first one the other day. Someone riding by on one of these e-scooters. So in the midst of, I guess, what's billed as a pilot project here in Calgary, uh, the San Francisco-based company Lime has launched an e-scooter service in Calgary. Uh, this is going to be a 16-month pilot project. It was only, uh, what, what's today, the 29th, only about two weeks ago that this launched. Already, apparently, uh, a lot of people have been showing up in Calgary emergency rooms. A uh, story from Friday. Alberta Health Services says we've seen over 60 injuries in the last 10 days reported to be related to scooters. Uh, yeah, take it easy uh, on those folks. Now, helmets are not mandatory. Uh, the city says they are strongly encouraged. So there's that issue we're dealing with. But there's another issue we may run into eventually, too. Now, the way Lyme operates, it's, it's meant to be simple. There are no docking stations. Essentially, you have the app on your phone. It'll show you where these e-scooters are, and then you, you go find one. One that was left there by the last scooter. Uh, then you use the app to unlock the e-scooter. There's a fixed rate or a fixed charge for that. And then you get charged a certain amount per minute. Simple enough. So you can just leave them wherever. Sounds convenient. But uh, depending on where you're leaving them, there could be a problem. Uh, so as Calgary sort of uh, adjusts to this new reality or, or whether we want to embrace this new reality, we came across a fascinating piece up at TheVerge.com on other cities that have had problems and the battles that have arisen. Uh, the headline, they said you could leave electric scooters anywhere. Then the repo men struck back. Fascinating story of what happened in San Diego. Joining us to talk more about it is the author of this piece, as mentioned up at TheVerve.com. Amy Martin is a writer, reporter, and storyteller. Amy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, here we're just kind of getting introduced to Lime and their e-scooters, but uh, this has become pretty big business in, in some U.S. cities, hasn't it? Um, yeah, it's huge. They've raised like a, a few billion dollars. I think Bird is up to two billion, and Lime is up to one billion. From they, kind of the, the their big selling point is that they get cars off the street and reduce pollution. Right, which I, I suppose they do, and certainly there's there's sure, a, a, an upside. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but there, there there seem to be problems that come along with this too. Um, yeah, one of the Big thing seems to be that they might breed sort of an entitlement with the people who ride them, and I've, you know, with drivers, you know, people, there's been a lot of accidents in California where drivers aren't paying attention to people, and now it seems like maybe that same attitude has crossed over to scooters. There's a lawsuit filed by Disability Rights California where they talk about how people are just riding scooters with absolutely no disregard for people walking on the sidewalks, leaving them in front of wheelchair ramps, leaving them in front of the front doors of businesses or houses. So, you know, it's someone else's problem to get rid of it and be able to leave their house. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the idea is, and, and for convenience sake, you can just leave these scooters anywhere. But, I mean, if you're leaving them on, on somebody's property, that that's that's potentially an issue. So this 
became, and, and your, your piece looks at San Diego in particular, where, where this became enough of a problem that somebody launched something called Scoot, Scoot Scoop yes. to address this problem. Yeah, and, you know, the way they describe how their business started, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like some big thing they had planned. It kind of was happened on a lark. You know, when John Heinkel was already a repo man and he happened to meet this bike shop owner, Dan, who had complained about, he kept finding scooters outside of his bicycle shop on his property. And, you know, it was, he was kind of questioning the whole narrative of are these scooters actually here to replace cars? Cause it seems like they're just trying to cut into my business. So they got to talking and then they, they, Dan pointed out to him, you know, that you've got a flatbed truck, you know, you've got the tow lots, at least according to their story. And from there, they started with Dan's landlord and then businesses around San Diego just kind of heard through word of mouth, word of mouth and local news reports that they were willing to pick up scooters, sometimes free of charge. And from there, they kind of ballooned into enough of a threat that in March, the bird and lime filed a lawsuit against them to try and get them to stop. <laughs> and and they, they've taken with thousands of them, basically, haven't they? Yeah, they said they had, they got their 10,360th scooter last month, which they celebrated with large coffees and donuts. <laughs> and now he thinks that they may have had 11,000 scooters. Wow. And and so the, these are this happens after people complain, right? They, these guys don't just drive around looking for scooters to take. They they respond to property owners who are complaining about them, right? Yeah, they're saying they're responding only to private property owners. The lawsuits claim they're snatching them from public property, but Dan and John say they don't do that. That they work with property owners, and I've spoken to a few of their property owners to confirm that they have relationships with them. Yeah, because the way these companies or the big companies, Lime and, and Bird, are framing it, that these guys go around basically steal these scooters and then then are holding them for ransom, essentially. Yeah, I mean, because they're charging them tow fees to get them back, and they, John and Dan have actually gotten Bird to pay about forty thousand dollars last year to get their scooters back, but now Bird, and then they said afterwards, Bird sent them an invoice. Or yeah, an invitation to invoice through Bird's paying app, Bird Pays, and so then he they sent invoices when they collected more scooters, and Bird stopped paying them, and then they didn't hear from Bird, and then they got the lawsuit, and so it's seen. And now Bird says in his lawsuit, well, they only paid that forty thousand dollars because they didn't realize that they didn't that like they didn't have to pay it. So they've they've collected some money from the scooter, or a nice chunk of change from the scooter companies, but. Now they don't want to play ball anymore. Right. And so at the moment, though, all of this this litigation is still pending. So nothing's been decided at this point. Yeah, nothing's been decided yet. Because, I mean, it could be an interesting precedent. I mean, at, le- at least in the United States. And I think we're watching this closely, too, because... I mean, this, you know, the underlying issue here is that there are potentially problems. If you get thousands of these e-scooters in use and people are just leaving them wherever, that that, that can cause a lot of headaches for, for property owners. Yeah. And, yeah, it's kind of the question of do if nobody cares about the property, you know, if the riders don't seem to care according to the locals, you know, people are just leaving them in driveways. And if the businesses don't care, don't seem to care all that much about the property like who like what's going to happen like if nobody seems to care about what happens to it and they just keep getting more scooters 
Well, yeah, people can read your piece. It's up at TheVerge.com. I guess we'll see how things work out here and uh, in other cities, too. But, Amy, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that is uh, freelance writer Amy Martin uh, did this piece for TheVerge.com on this battle in San Diego. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.